Hey, this is Jamie from Stillmeyer Games, and today I'm talking about something very close to, to, to my heart and my game design career at Stillmeyer Games, and that is what I've called the 12 tenets of game design, game design at Stillmeyer Games. So I phrase that in a very specific way, and I'll try to do that throughout this conversation, and I do it on our website as well. These are not rules for every game designer. Um, these, these are in no way the, are these unbreakable rules that game designers need to follow. Rather, they are guidelines that I try to follow when I am designing and developing games for Stonemaier Games, and that I like if people are submitting games to Stonemaier Games, I like if they take these into account. Um, a lot of they're just they become part of the core philosophy of the types of games that we publish. Although, with our, almost every one of these, you will probably find an exception among our games. And so um, this list has even changed over time. Even actually as, as I was compiling this list for this video, I changed one of the, the, one of the, uh, the descriptions because I thought it, it needed a little bit of updating. So look, I'm, what I'm gonna do today is go through these one by one uh, to talk about uh, what they are, why they're important, I think, and, um, and some examples of Stillmire games that use these, these philosophies, these tenets. Oh, and I should say, a long time ago when I originally posted these, I posted them as tenants. Uh, I believe it's T-E-A-N-T-S. A, a tenant is someone who like lives in in a in a uh, like an apartment, you know, an apartment tenant. Uh, a tenant is uh, like a like a pillar, um, uh, a, an abstract pillar uh, and uh, a principle. And so I appreciate someone. I believe her name was Julia. Corrected me on this a long, long time ago, and I fixed it on our website. Uh, so yeah, number one, number one is quick setup and start. And I've described this as follows. We appreciate a streamlined setup with, at most, minimal pre-game choices. So this ties into a few different things. And the examples that I, I might use here are Between Two Castles and Between Two Cities. Both of these games are designed for very, very easy setup. In fact, a lot of the setup in the, these games is done at the end of the previous game when you're putting the tiles back in the boxes. When you put the tiles back in the Between Two Cities box, that box is designed so they kind of swim around. They get shuffled in the box itself. And at the beginning of a round of Between Two Cities, you draw, um, I want to get this right because the two games I believe are different. I believe it's seven tiles. It might be nine. Between Two Castles is nine. Between Two Cities is, actually, they might be both, both be nine. But you're drawing a certain number of tiles at the beginning of the round, and they're already shuffled up. Between Two Castles does use an organizer um, rather than having the tiles swim around. And I, I think they both work in different ways. It's a little bit harder to shuffle the tiles in between two castles because you have to take it out of the insert. But the insert is designed in between two castles so that each stack is exactly the number of tiles you should be taking. I believe it's nine again. And so all you have to do, it's even easier just to, to set up the game because all you are doing is taking a reference card, a token, and then a stack of tiles where they've already determined, the box is determined for you, the insert is determined for you how many tiles you're taking. I think a streamlined setup is really, really important to help a game get to the table more often. And I've seen many games, many great games really, that have very elaborate setup processes where you are randomizing a number of tokens, shuffling a dozen deck of card, decks of cards, and the tokens are going on the board in certain places. And it's fine. I think this is fine. It can, this can work in certain games. But I'd rather get, a, get the game to the table faster um, rather than taking 20 to 30 minutes to set it up. And so I think sometimes you can dial back that variability a little bit some of the variability doesn't have as much meaning as other variability. Like shuffling a deck of cards is fine, but if you're shuffling 12 decks of cards, is that really adding to the game? Could you have combined some of those cards together and having have multi-use cards instead? 
Um, and also another thing that I mentioned in this is minimal pregame choices. I think I have a video about this somewhere, but the idea where you are not asking players to make significant, meaningful decisions before the game even begins, because many times a player might be learning the game or they might be uh, might, might have not have played the game for a long time. And to ask them to make a crucial choice at the beginning of the game before the game has even started means that you have to completely onboard them into the game. You need to let them know all of the consequences for that decision. Otherwise, it's very difficult to make. And a classic example of this, I don't want to bash on any particular game, but uh, this is a kind of a big example of this, is Catan. In Catan, you are making a crucial decision at the very beginning of the game before you really understand how the game plays. I think Catan gets away with it because... A lot of people know how to play Catan. And even I, I haven't played Catan in years, but if I went back to it, I'd be fine just jumping into playing. I don't need to remember all the different consequences of the game at the beginning of the game. You kind of just deal with them as the game goes. But uh, yeah, I do try to limit the number of decisions that players need to make before they even start playing. That's number one. Number two, I'll try to be faster here so I don't spend 45 minutes talking about this, but number two is the game must be intuitive to learn and retain. Those two crucial things, learn and retain. The phrase that I say here is, the design of the game takes into account the accessibility and learning experience. Ideally, new players can be presented with a few core rules and start to take turns due to the presentation and order of operations. Retention is also a factor enabled by few to no rule exceptions. Um, yeah, so this is all about how easy it is it to onboard new players into the game. Are you able to explain a few core concepts and then let players start taking turns, having meaningful turns, but also without ruining their chance at being competitive in that game um, as, as they continue to, to understand the game more and more, as you layer on more and more rules. Um, there are certainly games out there, many games out there, where you have to do a significant upfront teach for players to understand anything. And even in the Stillmire Games portfolio, I think Euphoria doesn't do a great job at this. Euphoria has so many interconnected systems that it's really difficult for players to start taking turns without hearing a, a pretty decent rules explanation of the game. Um, and the other side of this is also retention. I think this is something I really try to keep in mind as a designer. Not only is there a chance for any given session of a game that there will be a new player to the game, but there's also a decent chance that there will be someone who once knew the rules for the game and now they need to remember how to play. And this is, I think, super, super important to, because there are so many games that I've played where I play it and then I don't play it for a few months and I feel like I have to completely relearn the game. And the game doesn't really help me in terms of its interface and the rules uh, to help me re remember those things. And part of that are rule exceptions. If a game has a lot of fiddly things that aren't built into the interface for the game and a lot of exceptions that don't make sense or don't make thematic sense, then I feel like I have to completely relearn the game every time I'm going to play. And that is a huge impediment for me to get that game back to the table. Whereas if the game helps to onboard me every time I play, not just the first time, that can make the experience much better. An example, I have two examples of this in the Stonemaier Games uh, portfolio, um, Libertalia and Smitten. Smitten is such a tiny little game, it's very easy to get to the table, very easy to teach, very easy to play, and it's also very short, so you can play it, lose it, win it, and play it again right away. And Libertalia, uh, Libertalia builds the rules of the game, the round-by-round the round order, into the, the, the board itself, so it's right there on the board, and 
Uh, in Libertalia, we really took special care, in Libertalia Wizards of Galecrest in particular, to help onboard players a little bit better than the original Libertalia. Instead of giving new player, new player not just any players, all players, nine cards at the beginning of the game, we only give players six cards. And the same six cards. So one player can talk about the rules for those cards right away with all other players as they're, uh, as they're playing. And in Libertalia, you really can take even a random turn as your first turn. And it might not work out great for you for that specific turn, but it doesn't ruin your entire experience of the game. So you can literally take a random turn in Libertalia to see how it works out, see how it plays, and then continue playing the rest of the game. Number three is the ability to plan ahead before taking your turn, i.e. you shouldn't have to wait for the previous player to complete their turn to be able to, to, be able to decide what you're doing on your turn. This is a challenging game. This is a big challenge, especially games that have high levels of interaction or even any level of interaction. Like in uh, in Wingspan, if I'm aiming for a certain bird card that's face up, for a certain face up bird card, and you take that card, I have to reevaluate what I wanted to do on my turn. Do I do I want the card that was replaced? Do I uh, do I prioritize something else in the game? So if you have any interaction in a game. This is something that uh, that can be hindered. It can make it, your, it more difficult for players to plan ahead on their turn. But I think it is still important to keep in mind from game from a game design perspective. If I can't think about what I want to do in my turn at all before it gets to my turn, that can significantly increase downtime and the entire length of the game. And it can make me feel like I don't need to pay attention until it comes around to my turn. It can it can check me out of the immersion of the game. And so. I really try to design mechanisms so that you can at least plan uh, like kind of a primary thing that you want to do in your turn and maybe a backup thing. And an example of, the, of a game that I think does this really pretty well is Charterstone. And, and I'm, by the way, I'm using all examples from Stillmeyer Games today for, for this list. In Charterstone, um, there's basically no blocking in the game. It's a bumping worker placement game. So if your worker is on a space that I want to go to, I can still place my worker there, but I'm bumping your worker back to you. So I can completely decide in advance what I want to do on my turn uh, because I know that nothing will be blocked. The dis disadvantage there that I have to consider is if you've put a worker on a certain spot, by me bumping that worker back to you, you don't have to use a retrieve turn. You save a turn, similar to Euphoria. So that bumping mechanism allows me to have complete freedom to plan ahead for my turn, but there is still an interactive choice that goes into where I decide to place a worker on my turn. And number four, I have limited analysis paralysis with choices displayed on player mats, the game board, etc. There is a reasonable amount of information on display, not dozens of cards and tiles with detailed text that players need to read from across the table. This is a rule that I have broken sometimes, but I really try not to break it. When I say I've broken it, I think of Red Rising a little bit, because Red Rising does have a number of cards on the table that you're trying to read. But at any given time in Red Rising, it's really just the, the face-up card that you're looking at, the, the, the four face-up cards that you're looking at in each of the columns. Um, so yeah, analysis paralysis is, is, I think, generally a problem in games. It can be a player-driven problem. You can choose to I think in general, you can choose to have analysis paralysis or to just make a decision when you realize that you were slowing down the game for everyone else. But I think there's also a lot of game design decisions that can limit analysis paralysis. Um, and some of them I mentioned here, it, it give players what their choices are in a very clear and distinct way in the game. Uh, show them the different paths to victory so they can choose which path is important for them. Give players short-term goals. So if they're struggling to decide what to do next, they have a short-term goal and maybe they have a long-term goal that they can choose to pursue at any given time. Give players asymmetric abilities so they can say, okay, I don't really know what I want to do in my turn, but my character really likes to move. So I will move my character on this turn. Um, 
And also I talk about the amount of information on display, giving players a reasonable amount of information to consume at any given time so they don't feel overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. And part of that, like I mentioned with Red Rising, are how many face-up cards you, you show to players. And this, for this example, I wanted to mention Viticulture because one of the criticisms for Viticulture, and I get this, one of the criticisms is that the cards aren't face-up. You are blind drawing from the deck when you are drawing cards. However, there's a reason for this, and it's related to analysis paralysis and your, your physical ability to see across the table what the cards are. In the four decks of cards in, in Viticulture, if we had three of those of each of those cards face up at any given time, that would be 12 face up cards that you have to kind of keep track of throughout the game as you're looking at them. And some of them would be very hard to see from across the table. I think maybe we could have done this for wine orders and vine cards, but really the decision point in Viticulture isn't which card am I going to draw, but rather it's the game gives you a ton of, a ton of different cards in your hand and you are deciding when to draw the cards and when to play them. Um, so if, if you draw some vine cards, you're deciding which of these vine cards am I deciding to play? So anyway, yeah, we try to limit analysis paralysis through some of the design decisions we make in our games. Number five, tension and positive player interaction, but not hostility. I say here, we like to limit the potential for spite while encouraging various forms of interaction and tension. So this is a big thing, um, especially as I've evolved into being more of a Euro game player where... I have high agency on my turn, and and I am not doing many things on my turn that can hurt other players. Um, I seek. I found that I have sought more examples in games of positive player interaction, or interaction like the type I explained in Wingspan, where there are a limited number of cards on display at any given time, and there's a little bit of tension as to who will be the first player to get to a certain card. I, I, there's a card I want out there. Am I going to prioritize that and go get that card? Am I going to choose something else on my turn, knowing that that card might not be there when it comes back around to, to my turn? But overall, I'm trying to limit the possibility of, of destruction and, um, and aggression and spite in games. I don't want players to pursue those elements of games when they're playing our games. I don't want them to, to steal from other players, to destroy something that another player has built up and worked on. An example of our games is My Little Scythe. My Little Scythe actually leans into the idea of friendship in games. There's literally a friendship resource in the game uh, where you can, um, you, can, you, you, the, you can help other players through this, this friendship mechanism. Friendship matters in the game. Um, I think that's really, really cool that, that My Little Scythe leans into this idea of friendship and positive player interaction in a game. And I would love to see more games that really go deep into positive player interaction and that that is seen as a good form of interaction in games in general. And number six, interesting choices and strong agency, only a dose of luck. We love agency in games. So agency is having control over the decisions and outcomes. It means that players have control over their fate. Random elements are largely there for variability. If there's luck involved, players are opting into it or are at least able to make decisions based on random input. For example, instead of rolling dice to determine an outcome. So one example of this, I, actually, the example I'm going to use is Euphoria, but one other example that came to mind as I was reading that is in Tapestry. In Tapestry, there are different paths you can take. And there, there is randomness in some of those paths. But for example, if you, don't, if you want full agency in Tapestry, you can go after the tech track because the tech track you have face up technology cards that you can draw uh, and you can gain and you can see exactly what you're getting into with those technology cards. 
even within that same track, you can draw from the top card of the deck. So there's your choice. You choose from these this, this element that you have full agency over, the face-up cards, or do you go for a random element at the top of the deck? At the same time in Tapestry, you can choose a track that involves a little bit more, more randomness, like the science track. The science track uses a die. So you, if you like that form, if, if you like a little bit of luck um, in a game, you can choose to go after the science track and tapestry, but you don't have to. The real example I wanted to mention was Euphoria. In Euphoria, it is a game with dice as workers, and you are rolling those dice because it's fun to roll dice. However, in Euphoria, you are rolling dice as you retrieve them, not when you place them. So it is input randomness. You know what the dice are going to be. You know what the dice are. You have them in front of you. I have a five and a six in front of me, and I'm using that five and six and placing those workers on the board rather than placing a worker on the board, and then rolling the dice to see if I even get to use the action uh, or use the benefit or what the benefit will be. Um, so this form of input randomness I really, really like in games if you are going to have dice rolling or randomness. And number seven, rewards and forward momentum, not punishment and backwards movement. Our games help players feel like they progress during the game to a superior position than at the beginning i.e. engine building. And the, the one of the great examples of Stonemaier games that do this is Wingspan. In Wingspan, everything you do makes you better at doing that thing for the rest of the game. So for example, when I play a card, when I play a bird into the, the forest habitat, from then on, not only do I often have an ability on that bird that I'm activating every time I activate the forest, but I also am improving the core benefit of the forest itself. I'm, I'm kind of sliding over what the core benefit of that, that habitat is. I love this engine building aspect of Wingspan. It makes me feel a strong sense of progression and uh, the, it builds an order of operations. Which habitat do I want to build out first in this game and how does that impact my experience with the game? This whole idea of making rewarding games that make players feel stronger throughout the game is a huge part of what Stillmire Games does. There are exceptions. There are a few of our games that don't have really engine building at all. There's progression, but, but not engine building. But I really like it when games uh, allow players to feel more powerful at, throughout the game and that you're not just making only tactical decisions throughout the game. Number eight, strong connection between theme and mechanisms. Mechanisms are designed around a theme to keep players immersed in the experience instead of the structure of the game constantly reminding players that they're playing a game. For example, we avoid phases and action checklists. So an example of this is Scythe. So Scythe is a game that essentially gives players a set number, a set type of actions that they can complete. Uh, there's, there's a top row of actions that's paired with a bottom row. Top row is things like, like, um, like uh, producing, moving, trading. Uh, bottom row are things like building a structure, uh, deploying a mech, upgrading your map. All these are built into the interface of the game itself. So your focus is on this interface that is part of the game. There's even engine building built into that player map instead of having it be off to the side on a little list of actions that you can take. I find that building those actions into the interface of the game itself, whether it's a mat like inside, whether it's worker placement on the board itself, um, I find that that keeps me a lot more immersed in the theme itself. Theme goes beyond that though. Theme is also about uh, a strong connection between uh, how the theme and the mechanisms are combined. And really for every game that we decide, we are constantly asking, does this make sense in terms of the theme? Does this decision make sense for the theme or the experience that we're trying to get players to have? The feeling that we want players to have when they're playing this game. Does this mechanism make sense? Um, or if we have a feeling or an experience, what mechanism makes sense for that, that, that theme experience or mechanism? So we're constantly thinking about that in games and constantly questioning it. Questioning it. Yeah. 
Number nine, the potential for dramatic, memorable moments in a game is difficult to achieve, but it's a huge plus when the game allows and encourages them to happen. And uh, really, as I'm reading this, the example that comes to mind is, is Scythe, The Rise of Fenris. We designed The Rise of Fenris, an expansion for Scythe, around big, dramatic, memorable moments. Um, and I think that's crucially important if you're making a campaign game. Rather than putting in more sessions at the campaign game, have fewer sessions and more big, memorable moments that, that will stick in players' minds. But the example I give here is Tapestry, which I already talked about a little bit before. But in Tapestry, I really tried to build these dramatic moments into the game, where as you advance along the tracks, uh, there are these actions that become bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. And they really, really feel like these big, memorable, dramatic moments in the game. Or at least that's what I designed around. Especially at the very end of the track, there are these big, big moments that happen. Um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's what I'm aiming for here. And I almost want to build in the idea of uh, intrinsic motivations into this idea because I, I found that I really, really enjoy giving players the ability to pursue paths in the game. In fact, I'll get to this in a second. I'll come back to that, that one because there is a place where I can put that. Um, number 10 is a distinctly tactile experience. We love games with appealing, exciting components, ideally accomplished in an eco-friendly manner. It can be as simple as the cardboard Tetris-style pieces in Patchwork, or as complex yet important as the wheels in Sulkin. And the example I want to give here is in Pendulum. In Pendulum, there are uh, these hourglass components that we try to re make really nice hourglasses. And we also have a few metal components in Pendulum because we want it to feel players to feel really special when they have a certain achievement and they get this big, special, beautiful metal token. Um, we, we think about, and metal isn't particularly ecologically friendly, but we do make exceptions for that. We put the experience first. Um, but yeah, I am always thinking about what is the component hook of this game, both visually and in terms of what players are picking up and touching throughout the game. Are they enjoying what they're picking up and touching and moving around, these, these mechs inside? Um, even cubes. Cubes can sometimes be a really pleasant thing to pick up and touch, but sometimes it's nice to have a custom wooden token. Like in, in Viticulture, we have all these custom wooden tokens as buildings in the game. So I really try to focus on this, this tactile experience that we're having at the tabletop together. A reason where you're walking along a, you know, at a game store, at a convention, you see a game on the table and you're drawn to it immediately because of how it looks and the things that you want to pick up and touch as, you are, as you're looking at that game. Number 11 is variable factors that create replayability. Talked about this a little bit earlier with variability in games, variability in luck. Um, but the way I say it here is that you cannot play the same exact game twice, even if you try. And an example of this is Rolling Realms. So in Rolling Realms, even if you had the exact same combination of realms, which is difficult to happen, there are so many different combinations of three realms that can come out in Rolling Realms. Even if you had the exact same combination of realms that come out, the dice, I think the odds are astronomical that the dice would be the exact same roles as the, as the previous games, exact same roles in the exact same order. And so in Rolling Realms, you are sharing this element of variability together. All players have the same exact three realms and they're sharing the same dice. They're using the same numbers that pop up on those dice. All of our games are designed around this concept that you can definitely go into a, a game that you've played before and say, this is a strategy that I wanna take. I wanna prioritize this realm in Rolling Realms. I wanna prioritize this track in Tapestry. But the cards that you shuffle in Tapster are going to be different. The dice that you roll in Rolling Realms are going to be different. And so I like throwing that those different puzzles at players so that they, they can have a goal, they can have a strategy, they can have their intrinsic motivation, the thing that they want to pursue in that game, but the game is going to throw different twists and turns at them every time they play. 
And last, going back to the intrinsic motivations again, multiple paths to victory. Various game subsystems are balanced through playtesting and data analysis to be equal in their ability to reach the winning criteria. I've said this in a very dry way in, in this passage on our website, but really this is about giving players options, different options that they can pursue that are exciting and compelling and give them a legitimate chance at winning the game. Um, I like to give players those options, various ways that they can pursue a victory condition in the game. And Red Rising, I think, is a great example of this. In Red Rising, you start with a random hand of character cards, and you are building that same hand throughout the game. You're getting rid of some characters uh, at the moment where it's best time to the best time to deploy them, and you're gaining new characters to your hand so that you end up with the strongest hand at the end of the game. Not only are there there's a vast variety of characters that you can build around in Red Rising, but there are also different strategic paths on the board itself. Do you, go, do you pursue the fleet track? Do you pursue, pursue Helium? Influence of the Institute? Uh, what are you deciding there to pursue um, can have a big impact on your game and making the game feel a little bit different every time you play. And that's tied to those random characters that you're getting in your hand. That's it. Those are the 12. I think they'll continue to change over the years in little ways, but um, but they've stayed largely the same for a long time now. And uh, and I, I really like how they have manifested in our games. And I'm constantly drawn to other games from other designers and other publishers that use many of these core tenets as well. But again, that is not to say that these are the tenets for any other designer to follow. These are the, just the tenets that I seek to follow in the games that I design and the games that I publish. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below about our games, about other games that, uh, that you love that use these tenets or tenets that you want to challenge. If there's one of these, and really for any of their, these, there are examples of games that I love. There are exceptions. I have a video about this, exceptions to, to like the gaming rules and guidelines that I have. Um, feel free to mention those in the comments as well. Yeah, we'll have, a, we'll have a good chat about this in the comments, I hope. Let me know your thoughts in the comments below. Thanks.